passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, again, welcome to Crosswinds. Um, if you are a guest with us this morning, um, I just, I, I think I said this earlier, you have really bad timing uh, as we finish up this series. Um, this is not something that we typically look at here at Crosswinds, uh, but as we explore this topic, this conversation of gender dysphoria, we realize that as pastors, it is pastorally irresponsible for us not to address these things that are so, so big in our culture right now. And so uh, I just want to set you at ease. This is not a, a hot button issue that we like to come back to. It's not a hobby horse, uh, but, but this is a, a sense of our pastoral responsibility for us to address these things as a church and to look at them from God's perspective. So with that being said, I, I want to uh, just ask you a question as we start. I want you to imagine that you have a friend or a family member or, or a coworker or someone approaches you and says that they don't feel comfortable in their own skin. Not only do they say that they're not comfortable in their own skin, but they say that they are a man and they long to be a woman or, or vice versa. And the only time that they're comfortable is when they are cross-dressing in private. How do you respond to that? They come to you for advice. They, they know that this is, is wrong, but they, they don't know what to do. So how do you respond in that moment? Maybe you're just saying, Jordan, I don't really care about how to respond. Because I'm one of those people. I'm struggling with this. I'm wrestling with this. I know that it's wrong. But does the Bible offer anything to me? Can there be comfort found in the Bible? Can there be a strength that I can gain from Scripture that will help me carry on for one more day? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. As I mentioned, we're in the final week of a brief four-week series looking at some of the hot-button issues of our culture facing our church today. And I'm going to be honest right here at the beginning. This was by far the hardest sermon I have ever prepared for. Not only the hardest of this series, but the hardest by far that I've ever had to prepare for. And granted, I haven't had to prepare for too many, but this was just messy. It was difficult to work through these things. The Bible has something to say about it, but unlike other topics that we've addressed, there's not a specific passage that we can go to and exposit to look at and see how that influences our view of certain things today. Again, that's not saying that the Bible doesn't speak to this, but what we have to do is we have to look at some of the broader theological principles in Scripture. Look at those principles and apply them to this issue. So that's what we're going to do this morning. But as we do that, 
uh, I just want to bring us back to Isaiah 66.2. If you were with us our first week together, this is what we camped on. We looked at this passage, this verse, as we tried to emulate this with our lives. And this is what it says in Isaiah 66.2. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. I think that that is particularly important for us as we approach this this morning. Humility must be a part of of who we are. We have to recognize that, that we are sinful, fallen people, that we can get things wrong when we are trying to interpret the Bible. So we must be humble as we approach this topic. But at the same time, we must tremble before God's word. In fact, Isaiah 66, 2 shows us what true humility looks like. True humility is to tremble at God's word, to take God's word and to hold it in such a place of reverence that we trust it, that we hold on to it no matter what it says, no matter how we feel about what it says. And so that's what we desire to emulate today as we look at this topic of gender dysphoria. Now, I'm using this term gender dysphoria, and I'm just going to explain that real briefly. That means, essentially, confusion about your gender, okay? So you have, each of us has a biological sex. I am biologically male, and my gender is man. And we can get into whether these things are are false, artificial uh, uh, differentiations or distinctions, uh, but we're just going to use what our culture gives us right now. And, And so gender dysphoria is the uncomfortable uneasiness that some people feel in between their physiological, biological uh, person and their identity. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we look at God's word. But before we do that, I think it's particularly important for us to just pause once more and to pray for God's blessing upon us. So please join me in prayer. God, uh, as we approach this difficult topic, again, I just ask for your presence to be with us. I ask that your spirit would come, speak to us, teach us, reveal to us how we can love you more, how we can love others more more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. So this morning, we're going to look at this in two parts. First, we're going to look at at what the Bible has to say about this topic. And then second, we're going to look at uh, how do we respond uh, or or how do we um, show love to those who are around us who are experiencing not only this, but other issues uh, of of sexual ethics. Uh, So you could be referring to uh, your friend who is sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend or someone who is experiencing homosexual urges or or things like that. Uh, And so that's what we're going to be looking at in our second uh, half this morning. But first, let's go ahead and just jump into what the Bible has to say about this topic. If you do a quick survey of the Bible, you're going to see that gender dysphoria, this term is never actually used in the Bible. But the Bible has a lot to say about gender in general. Has a lot to say uh, about um, the ways that that men and women are, are different. And our view of gender as a whole greatly influences our discussion on gender dysphoria. This topic of gender dysphoria is actually a a small part of a much larger topic on on gender. And the Bible, as I said, has a lot to say about that. We have to first recognize where this debate comes from. This debate in our culture about gender. 
Our culture, increasingly over the past few decades, has begun to, to see gender as an entirely socially constructed thing. In other words, uh, we all, whether we are biologically male or we're biologically female, it doesn't matter, we all start as a blank slate. And as we grow up, our culture, our, our family, our society, our friends, our coworkers, all of them are writing on that slate, influencing our identity, forming us into a man or a woman. Our culture claims that gender is just completely artificial, completely socially constructed. And in one sense, that is true. Right after Silas was born, Silas is my uh, just over three-month-old son. Uh, right after he was born, Crystal and I decided to go to Pizza Ranch with him. And uh, it was right after church, and so Crystal addressed him up in this nice salmon polo. Okay, And as we go to Pizza Ranch, the lighting was a little bit weird, and I, you might know where I'm going with this. The lighting was a little bit weird, and so salmon didn't look exactly like salmon. And so this, this woman who we didn't know comes up to us and says, oh, she's so cute. How old is she? Now this woman, I could have very easily been offended. This woman called my newborn son a woman. Why is that? Was she trying to offend me? No, it's because the color pink, which, by the way, Silas was not dressed in pink. Uh, by, Silas was dressed in this color that, to her, was traditionally a female color. So in one sense, our culture is true. We do have a tendency to push uh, our, our kids in a certain way. Our culture does have an influence on us when we provide certain toys for our kids or certain opportunities for our children or we dress them in a certain way or, or we dress them in a certain color. And so in one sense, this is a true claim. But can we go from there to saying that every single part of our gender is socially constructed. Well, I, I don't think so. And I don't think the Bible allows that either. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be looking just at, at two verses this morning uh, from, from Genesis, and then we're going to look at a couple other passages afterwards. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. This is a very important passage to look at as it, we begin to look at gender. We begin to look at, at humanity, and I think that this teaches us at least three truths for us this morning about gender. So let's go ahead and read this passage. Follow, uh, please follow along as I read aloud. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them ha have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What do these two verses tell us about gender? I think first, uh, they make it very clear that gender is not a social construct. Contrary to what our culture tells us. Gender is not a social construct. We see that gender is something that is actually rooted in creation itself. When God creates Adam and Eve, he doesn't create them as two infants. He doesn't create them uh, as infants that allows them to mature over time, to be influenced by their culture over time. Instead, he creates them distinctly man 
and distinctly woman with quote-unquote pre-programmed genders that are there when they are created as adults. And you consider this context, there isn't a lot of culture or society to influence them. After all, it's Adam, it's Eve, it's God, and it's a whole bunch of animals. There's not a lot of culture there to push them in a certain way when it comes to influencing their genders. I think more importantly, though, Genesis 1 and later Genesis 2 give us a picture of what quote-unquote, manness and womanness. And I know that those are clunky terms, but I think that we're just going to keep referring to those because I think that they're healthy for us. They, they show us what these two things are. Now, there's a lot of overlap. After all, both man and women are human. And there's a lot of difference between being an animal and being a, a human in God's eyes. And we'll get to that briefly here in a moment. But there are similarities, and there are differences. God has created both men and women to be distinct from one another. I think these distinctions can be seen in three different categories. First, there are distinctions on physiological or or biological levels. We can recognize that men and, and women look different. There's no denying that. And today, our culture, as I said, tries to differentiate between physiological truth about our biological sex and between our identity or or gender. I I think that that's a a false dichotomy. As we see in the Bible, these two things are unique and they are tied together. So we have distinctions on the biological level. Second, we see distinctions on the temperamental level. Men and women are different. We have different tendencies. No wonder there's the joke about men and women being from completely different planets. When you try to communicate with someone of the opposite sex, there are tendencies at times, and and some of you who are married can, can relate to this, to completely miss what the other person is saying. Just completely miss what the other person is saying. These differences are true, not only on the biological level, but also on the temperamental level. We have tendencies towards different things. Again, there is a great deal of overlap, but there are distinctions. And our third area that we see is there are distinctions between different roles. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because it's not relevant to our discussion this morning. But Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 seem to portray men and women as having different roles in God's unfallen creation. God creates gender, not as a social construct, but as something that each and every one of us has. That's the first truth that we get from this passage. Second, we see in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 that God creates gender to be good. God creates gender to be good. After God finishes his creation in Genesis 1, in verse 31, he says, and it was very good. God looks at his creation. He says, it is very good. While it's not explicitly stated, I think it's pretty clear that these biological differences and these temperamental differences and these role differences that we see when it comes to gender, they are a part of that proclamation that creation is good. Gender distinctions are not a part of the fall. They have been given to us as a part of God's good original creation. 
Now, we'll, we'll get into the way the fall affects things and how when the fall comes, uh, life as we know it has been corrupted. But we have to see that gender itself starts as a part of God's good, original creation. So that's our second truth. Third thing is this, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, show us that gender is one of the ways that we are created in the image of God. It is one of the ways that we are created in the image of God. This doctrine of the image of God is one of the most important doctrines in the entire Bible, especially one of the most important doctrines that we see in Genesis chapter 1. We see in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, that God creates humanity in his image. Both men and women are created in the image of God. And this is the source of all human dignity. You wonder why we as Christians stick up for the rights of other humans. It's because everyone that we know, everyone that we don't know, every single human on the face of the planet, no matter how corrupt they are, is created in the image of God. Their dignity is tied to that fact that they are in God's image. So what does this concept of being in the image of God mean? Well, first of all, it means clearly that we are not God. We are not God. God did not create a bunch of little gods to to rule the earth. He created us as humans who are made in his image in order to mirror him or to be like him in some way. In ancient times, when emperors ruled over vast amounts of land and they didn't have ways to travel across those lands, they would actually build statues or images. And they would put these images all throughout the land in the distant parts of the places that they ruled as a reminder of who it was that ruled, as a reminder of who was in charge. Even if people never saw that ruler... They could look at those images and be reminded that someone else was in charge. Someone else had authority there. And I think that in the same way, we are created in the image of God to point each other to God. We are created in God's uh, image to be signposts pointing all of creation to God, reminding us that there is a God, and not only is there a God, but there is a God who rules and who reigns and who is in charge. Now, humanity, as we can see throughout history, can very easily choose to ignore that image, but it is there nonetheless, pointing us to God. I mentioned that being created in the image of, the God, of God is, is the way, one of the ways that we uh, show our gender distinctions. And it shows that there is an inherent worth or, or a dignity tied to both men and women because we are created in the image of God. Genesis 1 has a lot to tell us about gender. It tells us that it's not a social construct. It reminds us that it is created good. It reminds us that it is one of the ways that we show that we are created in the image of God. That we mirror God when we live out our gender. So this is the foundation uh, that the Bible builds on when it begins this discussion about gender. Looking at, at gender dysphoria specifically. 
But we should be real clear, real quick, as we continue about these distinctions and the differences between these genders. We have to recognize that gender is a very, very, very broad category. And I think the best way to describe this is by drawing two lines. So let's go ahead, Wade, throw up our first line here. Yeah, this is a, a you know, beautiful, very high in-depth uh, graphic here. So let's call this uh, line masculinity, okay? Every single acceptable form of masculinity is found on this line. Now, on one end, you might have what is, quote-unquote, for better or worse, considered to be traditional expressions of masculinity, uh, like you like to hunt or, or shoot guns or, or play sports or uh, watch sports or, or build things with your hands or things like that. So that is, is one part of this line. But at the same time, there are other expressions of masculinity that are just, just as legitimate. There are things like cooking, things like reading and writing and gardening that might not fit into this prototypical category of traditional masculinity that are acceptable in God's eyes. Masculinity is a very broad concept in the Bible. You just look at King David himself. King David was a guy who killed Goliath and then he went home and he played on his harp. Very clear that there is a broad definition of gender in the Bible. Same thing. Let's go ahead and throw our second one up. Uh, femininity. Um, I'm not going to spend as much time on this because I'm not a woman and I'm not familiar with these things. But the same thing can be said about this. Acceptable femininity. That's a fun word to say, by the way. Uh, acceptable femininity can fall in, in, can look vastly different from person to person. So let's go ahead and throw up our, our final image here. This is the way that they overlap. There is a ton of overlap between acceptable masculinity and acceptable femininity in the Bible. There are are women who will go and kill people just like men do. You know, a traditional form of masculinity. And then you have the other extreme as well. We need to recognize as we continue that masculinity or femininity does not look exactly like us. It is and can be and frankly should be a lot broader than that. I just wanted to to throw that out there, make sure that that caveat is in place as we continue to see, uh, as we move on to some more passages from Scripture to see what the Bible talks about. Uh, Because it's going to be really important as we go to our next passage. Take a look at at 1 Corinthians 11. This is a really interesting passage, and you'll see why as as we read it. But this passage teaches us this. The Bible affirms essential maleness and essential femaleness. The Bible affirms that there are essential parts or qualities of these two things. So take a look at the first seven verses here. It says this. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every wife is her husband, and the head of, every, of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophecies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophecies with her head covered, uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is in the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of 
man. As you can probably guess, this is a very controversial, difficult passage to interpret and to understand. It says a lot about gender roles, but we're not going to get into those. Instead of looking at that, we're going to go deeper and see what Paul is, is primarily trying to argue here. Apparently in Corinth, there were some men who were shirking their duty duties as men and taking the appearance of women to get out of those roles. In the same way, there were women who were shirking their duties as women and were taking the appearance of men to take over those rule or those roles. The basic argument here is not that men shouldn't wear hats or that women with young children shouldn't get mom cuts. That's not at all what it's saying here. Instead, this is an argument saying that there is something intrinsic. There's something that's a part of each and every one of us that has to do with our identity. And it's tied up in our very physical bodies. There is something about us that is essentially male or essentially female. All men should look like men. All women should look like women. I'm going to be completely honest. This varies greatly from culture to culture or from age to age. If any one of you has seen a picture of what I looked like in high school, you will recognize that this varies greatly from culture to culture or from age to age. But there is something here that we can pick up on, that there is an essential maleness or essential femaleness that is a part of our identity. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is reminding us. One final passage, one uh, final principle. This is from 1 Corinthians 6, uh, a passage that we looked at last week, or rather two weeks ago and the week before that, and talks about homosexuality. I'm just going to focus on something else here. It says, I, I think that this tells us the Bible prohibits gender switching. The Bible prohibits gender switching. Now, uh, let me explain that. And to do that, we're going to look at the NASB translation. Um, I, I typically preach from the ESV, and, and I know a number of people here have the NIV, uh, but those two translations miss something. So we're going to read this from the NASB. It says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Okay, now, a couple weeks ago, if you remember, we were looking at some Greek. We looked at this word, arsenikoitai. And we saw that this word uh, is, is a very argued over word. But I want to focus on this other word that, that is appearing here, malakoi. In the ESV and the NIV, they take these two words and they just combine them together. And they both say that they just refer to homosexuality. And the reason why they do that is because one is referring to the active partner in a homosexual relationship and the other is referring to the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. That's why this word malakoi refers to or can literally be translated as the NASB does here as the effeminate one. Now, what Paul is not arguing here is that those who are a little more sensitive or who don't like going and shooting guns are condemned before God. That's not at all what he's saying here. He's saying, for one of the reasons why there seems to be this prohibition on homosexual behavior is because it involves the switching of genders, changing from our gender that God has given us to enact a different gender. Again, that's not the only reason, as we saw a couple weeks ago, but I think it's certainly one of 
the reasons. God, in the Bible, prohibits gender switching. Now, as we transition from what the Bible has to say to how do we respond, I think it's important for us to just briefly mention one thing, something that we talked about a couple weeks ago with homosexuality. We have to recognize that just like homosexuality is not a choice, so also gender dysphoria is not a choice. Let me, let me explain that again uh, for those of you who weren't here two weeks ago. The orientation that we receive is not a choice from God. It's not a choice that we make, rather. Uh, it can be uh, rooted in our, uh, the way we are raised. It can be rooted in, in our biology or, or things like that. It can be rooted in a number of different places. Just as in the same way, the fact that I may struggle with lust is not my choice. Now, the way that I enact on that lust is a choice. And the way that we enact on those homosexual desires is certainly a choice. But the orientation or the struggle itself is not necessarily a choice. That's important for us to remember as we approach gender dysphoria. That's why I love that term. It's about people who are confused about their gender. And there are ways that we can live this out and work through this in a way that's honoring to God. And in a way that's not honoring to God. We have to recognize that this is a part of the fall. Not as a source of rebellion against God. Now, if we enact on those desires, yes, it is an act of rebellion against God. But simply as the fact that the fall corrupted all of creation. All of the world. All of us is tainted or tainted by sin. That doesn't mean that we're completely bad. Just that there is a problem here. I say that. Because I think that understanding where these things come from and what the Bible says, it doesn't change our stance on homosexuality or, uh, frankly, on cohabitation or, or on uh, gender dysphoria, those kind of things. It doesn't change what the Bible says, but it does make us more compassionate with those who struggle with these things. So with that being said, let's go ahead and move forward and see how we respond How do we respond when we're discussing sexual ethics from a Christian standpoint? Again, we're not just talking about uh, gender dysphoria or or homosexuality. Uh, We're we're talking about the, the couple who's having sex before marriage, the man who's looking at pornography on his computer. How do we respond to those who struggle with falling short of God's sexual ethic decree? At the risk of being overly simplistic, I want to divide this up into three categories. First, we have uh, a category that I'm going to call the struggling. These are people who are in the church who recognize that lust is wrong, who recognize that, that fulfilling their homosexual desires are wrong, that they are not honoring to God. And so they are fighting these temptations each and every day. The way we respond to people that fit into this category is going to be vastly different than the way we respond to people in other categories. So that's our first one. Second one, I've called rebellious. These are people who claim to be Christian, but they are still shacking up with their girlfriend because God is going to forgive me anyway. Uh, They know what the Bible says, and they continue sleeping around. They continue doing these things anyway. Our response to these people is obviously going to be much different than the people in category one. 
Our third category is what I've called the unchurched. These are people who want nothing to do with Christianity. They have no desire to hear what the Bible has to say. They're outside of the church, and they are by far the largest category here. So how do we respond with love to each of these different groups? Well, first, let's look at the struggling. I think to respond with love to the struggling is to respond with support. To respond with support. These are people who need fellow Christians to walk alongside them, to carry the burdens that they have. They need people to cry out the Psalms with them, to pray with them, to pray for them, to read the Bible with them, to read the Bible over them, to meet with them constantly. These are people who are struggling and need our support. I think a great example of this from Scripture is the way Paul and Timothy interacted with one another. Now, neither of these two struggled with a a sexual ethic, but Paul was abandoned. He was abandoned by nearly all of his followers. He says multiple times that I have no one like Timothy. Everyone else has left me, has ignored me, except for Timothy. He's walking beside me in the midst of these difficulties, in the midst of these dark times. I have Timothy. He's praying for me. He's praying with me. He's comforting me. He's walking with me in the midst of the struggle. And that should be the way that we interact with those in our midst who are struggling in these areas to be a source of support that these people so desperately need. To respond with love is to respond with support. Second, the rebellious category. To respond with love is to respond with wisdom. To respond with wisdom. Here's what I mean by that. This is a category that's actually very small. There are a lot of people who will claim to be Christians and are living these different lifestyles who actually don't even understand what the gospel is. They just think that the gospel is a set of good of rules for you to follow to make you a good person just like anything else is. They don't fully understand the gospel. And so the way that we would respond to those people who at first glance may look like they are rebellious is actually to respond to them in the same way that we would someone who is unchurched. Someone who doesn't understand the gospel, who doesn't know the gospel. That's what it means to respond with wisdom. But more than that, to respond with wisdom also means that we should recognize uh, what we're supposed to do with this person if they do fit in that category. There are times, as Paul says, to expel the immoral brother, that we should do the same. If there is a source or a sense of an unrepentant spirit in these people, then maybe God is calling us to respond with wisdom and to expel them from our circles. Again, I'm not saying that that's a universal declaration. That's where wisdom comes in for us. Where does wisdom come from? It comes from reading God's word. It comes from praying to the Holy Spirit, asking God for wisdom and guidance. It comes from talking to friends, getting godly counsel from your church, having a clear conscience before God. That is what wisdom means. And God calls us to respond with wisdom. Third area, the unchurched. To respond with love to the unchurched is to respond with grace. It's to respond to them with grace. Remember, these are people that are not in the church Their greatest need is not to clean themselves up. Their greatest need is the gospel. 
Their greatest need is to hear the good news of Jesus. If we get someone who doesn't believe in the gospel to live a more moral life, to clean themselves up without having the gospel, we've done them no good. In fact, we've given them a false sense of security that they are going to be okay in God's eyes. They are still dead in their sins. Their greatest need is the gospel. Their greatest need isn't to see the, or try to clean themselves up. Their greatest need is to refer, or realize that they can't clean themselves up. Only, but the, only the blood of Christ can do that. That's true, not just for people who are outside the church. That's true for us as well. I, I love the way Jesus interacts with the woman at the well in John 4. He responds to this woman who is so far from God. He responds to her with grace. He doesn't condone her sin, but neither does he demand that she go clean herself up before she can find fellowship with believers. Friends, the reality is each and every one of us is that woman at the well. Each and every one of us in one sense has fallen short of God's sexual ethic. Maybe we've fallen short or rebelling against God in another way. Each of us is the woman at the well. Maybe you're hearing this conversation and you're saying, you know what, Jordan, I don't really care about how to respond to people because I am the person that you are describing. I am someone who is in desperate need of that water. Maybe you're rebelling against God in another way. Whatever the case is, Jesus offers you living water. He offers you grace. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you mercy. He offers you new life. He offers you all these things in the gospel. How do we respond? Respond with support. Respond with wisdom. Respond with grace. For we all need grace. Each and every one of us needs grace desperately. The only thing that separates us from people who don't believe in God is that we have received that grace. And the way that we respond to this grace that has been given to us is by or through a, a love for God. It's, it's shaped by a trust in his word. We started our time together in Isaiah 66. Started our, our series together, honestly, in Isaiah 66. I think that this call to tremble before God and his word is such a, a powerful way for us to end, or it's for us to end this morning and for, to end this series as a whole. In your sermon notes on the back page, there's a, a prayer that's printed there. I just want to invite you to stand, and we're actually just going to read this prayer together. It's, it's based off of Isaiah 66, too. Uh, and while we're praying this, I'd invite the worship team to come forward as we all pray this together, asking that God would watch over us and bless us. So please pray with me. God, help us to be a people to whom you look, especially as we talk about the sexually confused. Help us to be a church that is humble. Let us humbly admit that we are sinful. Let us humbly recognize that it is only by your grace that we are able to be your children. 
let us recognize that it is through that same grace that others can become your children. And God, help us to tremble at your word. When we find things in your word that we do not like, help us to submit ourselves to your powerful Holy Spirit. Come and shape us more into the image of your Son, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.